What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain my friends Michael and Annie from MAPS were two of the principal investigators on the flagship MDMA trauma trials conducted by MAPS. They were right there on the ground level, and they're here to tell you the stories of the amazing transformation and healing that occurred in these landmark clinical trials. A while back, there was some dubious and interesting studies and whether you want to go into the propaganda conspiracy or not there was a lot of information put out about how deadly and neurotoxic and how if you took mdma or ecstasy as they called it it would just melt your brain immediately it was kind of this idea that that came about and even when the discussion came up with you know people in my parents generation somehow this information traveled all across the world and everybody thought oh mdma eat your brain you know and so that was some of the uphill battle that you guys that was the climate that you guys started how have you seen that start to shift after you guys have done some of this research and some of these clinical trials? Well, it shifted radically. It's really remarkable the change in attitudes, even in the last several years. You know, it's been gradual. But, um, yeah, finally, I, I think a couple things. Um, you know, the, there was the holes in the brain misleading um, pictures that they, you know, scan pictures. And, and if, if I was right, they were actually testing a different methamphetamine with that study, or or how was how was that? How did that come about? What well, was, was the what was the mistake? That was the was second the... thing. There, there were. I mean, there were lots of things, but I guess in broad strokes, uh, there was the whole thing about holes in the brain, which right. was, you know, it was a a. a, a uh, scans of blood flow reflecting act blood flow and they just basically as I understand it they just turned the gain up to make it more dramatic but they represented as if those were actually anatomical holes like it was eating away those like parts of your yeah. brain so rather than scuttling blood flow right. to different parts well, maybe parts that made you feel better and open your heart maybe, I mean, maybe those parts yeah, using the picture temporary shifts in mm -hmm. blood flow yeah and so mm -hmm. yeah a lot of people got scared by that then the second thing was when george riccardi at johns hopkins published a study saying uh mdma caused dopamine toxicity mm -hmm. it was published in science and Based on that, we lost our first IRB approval. So mm -hmm. we had FDA approval, we had IRB approval, we were working on DEA approval. And then when that Riccardi study came out, 
the IRB was got concerned and wouldn't and withdrew the approval because the press took that and just ran with it. They, they ran with it. Well, mm -hmm. there was a lot of their press releases. The uh, you know there was a lot of media attention brought on by the you know the the journal itself. Science. That it would cause Parkinson's. Right. Yeah. And then it came out sometime later. Was did, Were you guys part of that uncovering process when it... No. We were pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Well, and, and, what, and what was it? It came out that it wasn't actually but MDMA that written, was tested. You had written an article. You and Rick had written well, a letter to Nature. We responded to the, the Na Nature Was it Nature? Article. Yeah, Nature. Yeah, yeah. Nature. I, no, Science. 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 It was in Science. We responded with a letter that was published saying, you know, there's something funny here. This doesn't really add up for one thing there's no other evidence of this and for the other thing if you know 20 percent of the baboons and squirrel monkeys died from the injections of supposedly mdma and we said you know we probably would have heard about it if 20 percent of people at raves were dying every weekend. <laughs> maybe <laughs> you know? yeah so uh -huh. but there was or um, had parkinson's or, or yeah, yeah and then developed just, parkinson's people were saying oh now there's going to be a uh uh you know, big epidemic of Parkinson's. Right. So it was a, about a year later that they published a retraction, and they said, "Oops, the bottles were mislabeled. We did we didn't give MDMA at all. We gave methamphetamine, which <laughs> whoops, <laughs> whoops, which is a prescription medicine. Yeah, known to cause dopamine toxicity. Right. So when it was MDMA, it was this is a disaster. We're going to have an epidemic of Parkinson's. When it was suddenly <laughs> methamphetamine, a prescription medicine, oh, that didn't seem to be a concern anymore. So this is either the most unlucky accident in all of science, or there's something that's a little bit fishy here, which I mean, you don't have, we don't have to go too deep into it, but if, if you had to put your, if you had a coin to bet and you had to put it on a really unlucky accident or something a little fishy, which way would you push your coin? I would push it toward really unlucky accident. Yeah, all right. I don't think, you know, these are smart people. And it was bound to come out eventually. Yeah. But what I would say is the way it was presented with, without any skepticism on their part, mm -hmm. when we raised skepticism, they dismissed it. It looks to me, I don't know, of course, but it looks to me as if they were kind of blinded by their mission to show how harmful MDMA was with millions of dollars of funding from the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Mm -hmm. So, I don't and know. And why didn't the reviewers pick it up, too? Yeah, there was a the lot of concern. The reviewers that reviewed the article. Looks like you might be pushing the coin a little bit I more mean, on the fish I mean, that's stuff. another part of it. Like, yeah. where is the scientific rigor Right. Um, looking at, at these things? Well, obviously, if they published a positive story, it would have been less funding, less attention, you know, the media probably wouldn't have picked it up because the climate was so anti-MDMA, anti-drug at that point, but they created this finding and it, it truly, you know, it seemed like every news organization picked it up and it became yeah. a massive, massive story. And they yeah. got, and it's one of those things like, you know, you watch those kind of fictionalized courtroom dramas and someone says, um, just like when you murdered those other people, right? And then objection, your honor. <laughs> like, uh, well, the jury strike that from their memory. Like, what? What do you mean you can't strike it from your memory? You just said he murdered those other people. Like, yeah. it's in my head. I can't, the, main, the memory doesn't work like that. We're not computers, you know? Yeah. And yeah. for a lot of people, that's been, this idea that they still can't get out of their head, that there's, 
And, and I think obviously you guys have done it absolutely impeccably the right way to start to show that other path. And I think so, you know, let's cover that here for anybody who still has those thoughts or anything rambling around in their head. You know, what have you seen with the, you know, vast multitude of patients that you guys have worked with? What is the, what is the safety of, of MDMA short and, and long term that you guys yeah. have discovered? Well, we haven't worked with a vast number, so our numbers are mm-hmm. well for clinical research. Small, it's... But we we've now in the MAP studies there have been 107 people in the PTSD studies. There have been over 1,600 people in clinical trials, you know, including many other more uh, you know phase one trials. Mm-hmm. So, but well, the the important thing is is that times the number of times they've taken MDMA is it. A large number of MDMA sessions. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we we've done neuropsychological testing before and after, and found no evidence of any decline in neuropsychological function before yeah. and after placebo and before and after MDMA. So, it seems very clear from in terms of neurotoxicity that these kinds of doses range in small numbers of doses. We haven't found any any problem with that doesn't mean there couldn't be some effect if people take lots of it often or something like that and like anything else mdma does have risks but what we've seen is it has a good risk benefit ratio we've seen a lot of evidence of benefit and the risk has been low so yeah any medicine can turn into a poison if not taken in the appropriate Mm -hmm. dose and the appropriate frequency i remember i had a acute liver toxicity because i accidentally took I was thinking I was taking a nose cold medicine and a painkiller, but the nose cold medicine had acetaminophen in it. Mm. And I, so I doubled up on the amount of Tylenol and I was sick, had jaundice, like Mm. my eyes turned yellow. I was horribly sick for like Mm -hmm. two weeks. Right. And, you know, and yeah, I think it kills, you know, just under a thousand people a year, acetaminophen toxicity, you know, and that's just this common medicine. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, baby Tylenol. We're giving this to infants, you know, and at the same time, it's killing a lot of people. So medicine to poison is really on a, on an arc where at a certain point, here we go, minimum effective dose, it becomes medicine and then continue along that arc and Mm -hmm. pretty much everything becomes poison. Right. Except, you know, things like marijuana, it seems like you could pretty much consume a lot before you reach that arc. Very, the LD50 for that window. is like yeah. giant, mm-hmm. like filling a room full of marijuana and yeah. forcing you to eat your way out of the room or something, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. I think you'd probably fall asleep before you die. <laughs> well, or you get really, really <laughs> paranoid, really paranoid some way through. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so safety, you know, excellent safety data, but that's only the the entry of this of this story the real story is the massive you know paradigm shifting benefits that you guys are showing in treatment particularly of ptsd i remember we had a um a dinner at my house with uh with sanj and he was you know preparing showing some of the um reduction in that uh trauma score and it was like okay here's the conventional treatment you know, reduction. And here's the MDMA assisted psychotherapy treatment. And you look at those and you're like, we're not even playing in the same, this isn't the same sport. This is a whole different ball game entirely. This is a whole stratosphere. This is a, another dimension that we're dealing with. So what are those, you know, for people who don't know, 
you know, what are the, what's the difference between MDMA assisted psychotherapy and the conventional psychiatric approach? Well, you know, for one, I mean, I do want to say for some people, the, you know, existing treatments can be very effective, but the, the problem is for a large percentage of people, I would say at least half the, they don't respond to existing treatments. And um, the people we've studied so far have been people that have failed the other treatments. So even though they've, in most cases, failed a lot of treatments, with MBMA, 83% is what we saw, no longer had PTSD anymore after two MBMA sessions a month apart. So it seems to be a very powerful catalyst for the therapeutic process. You know, unlike other drugs, it's not, we're not just studying drug treatment, we're studying MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So it's the way that MDMA acts as a catalyst is very, very impressive. Yeah, and, and looking at, you know, even Rick's presentation at the start of this conference showing that it's not only that during the treatment times that the trauma score and their trauma is reduced mm -hmm. over time it continues to reduce so it, yes it yeah. sets this positive cascade of healing of self-healing yeah. that continues to carry on and reduce trauma as time goes on right yeah the post-traumatic growth yeah mm -hmm. which is really remarkable because that's not the traditional psychiatric model which is okay we found this thing that's going to repair this one narrow little circuit and you're going to have to take this forever and if you ever do want to get off it it's going to be a real pain in the ass you know what i mean yeah. and that's the the traditional model and then all of a sudden you know this medicine comes along in conjunction with the therapy and it's okay you do it a couple times and then not only do you not have to do it anymore you're going to continue to get better yeah. yeah, that's where the minds should be getting blown everywhere, all across the psychiatric field. I mean, and it, and they don't need to take it again. Yeah, you know, they they have their skills that they've learned, and they start to use their skills because they they couldn't use their skills before because they had PTSD and they had so many symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how is it working? What is going on? What's the mechanism of action here? How how is this happening? Well, we've been, you know, we've been studying whether it works much more than how it works. We're right. obviously interested in how it works, but uh, for the purpose of like nonprofit drug development, where what the FDA cares about is whether it works. Right. Yeah. So we have less information about how, but we have a lot of ideas about how. What's your best one? Maybe the most... A straightforward one, anyway, that's, I think, a big part of it, only part of the picture, but a big part is it, you know, decreases activity in the amygdala, the fear center of the mm -hmm. brain, which in people with PTSD, there's too much activity in the fear center and not enough activity in the prefrontal cortex, the higher processing areas. Right. And MDMA d does the opposite of that. It decreases activity in the fear center, increases activity in the prefrontal cortex so it allows people to suddenly have the fear they're not cut off from their emotions but the fear is is uh, you know modulated enough so that they're able to reprocess the trauma in a much different way without being either overwhelmed by emotion or cut off you know emotionally numb because mm -hmm. those are the two extremes that happen in ptsd 
people get triggered and the emotions are overwhelming and they can't really process things adequately or they're so internally avoidant that they're cut off from the feelings and then they can't really process the feelings. Yeah. So MDMA kind of gives this window in between of a period of time when it's sometimes it's called the optimal arousal zone or the window of tolerance where they can reprocess the trauma. I think yeah. that's a big part of it. And then when that memory comes up and suddenly people are able to manage it, they're not overwhelmed, then when it gets reconsolidated, memories get, you know, after they come up, they get restored. Yeah. When it gets reconsolidated, it doesn't have, it's associated with a situation in which it was safe and manageable and supportive rather than all the fear that from the original. Yeah, so it, it's a bit like the mind and the memory is like a, a rewritable floppy disk to use the old terminology. From mm. Probably some people listening to this podcast are like, what the fuck is a floppy disk? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, or a rewritable CD also, you know, these things where it has this codes of information, these bits that are of information, and then you have the opportunity to, to re-encode that. So these memories, these traumatic memories are stored not only with the memory of actually what happened, but the most important thing to the body is the emotion that occurred and happened during this because that's what's going to guide future mm -hmm. action you know that's yeah. the translation into should i be afraid of this or should i not be afraid and when you have a memory that's soaked in these deeply traumatic emotions and then that creates this kind of um, pattern in the brain that's really challenging and then if you go in there and re-access that same memory but you're in such a positive kind of the only real way that I know how to describe it is like a heart centered, you know, loving, safe state from the MDMA. You're reaccessing that memory, but you have a totally different emotional state that you're accessing right. it in. Mm -hmm. And then so the, tra the trauma of that, the emotional condition of that memory starts to get rewritten slightly with the new state that you're in, you know, and so when it gets stored back into the brain, it's no longer, you know, soaked through with all that emotional trauma. It also has this, you know, rewritten, hey, everything's going to be all right yeah. when I access yeah. that memory. And a, a number of, um, of the veterans have used the analogy of going through the file system and processing what's in the file and then putting that file in the filing cabinet where yeah. it belongs. And so I think part of it is also putting it in the past where mm -hmm. it, it actually is and or it isn't happening now, but it feels like it's happening now. So that's part of it after the processing of the memory. Yeah. It's put where it needs to be. Yeah. And then it also catalyzes this incredible process of healing for people that happens after the session. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so individualistic how it happens, but individualized how it happens. But you know, what needs to happen in the body is happening. Any kind of things that are stored in the body are there and you can work with those and then work with the process and the emotions and actually living with the emotions again, because so many are, so many of the people are cut off from their emotions mm -hmm. when they have PTSD. They either, like Michael said, numb um, out and, and can't feel feelings because of the trauma and that shuts out all the good joyful memories, yeah. joyful times. Yeah. It makes sense. Something is that traumatic. And then you, um, and you know, you can't really cut off only that 
emotional right. memory. You have to cut off all emotions. Let me separate from my yeah. emotional body entirely. And that'll offer some layer of some yeah. layer of defense there. Yeah. And that's so, usually really surprising for people. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're the good memories are cut off. Yeah. I don't even have access for, to those. Yeah. Interesting. Now, is it as far as, um, you know, a lot of people d would describe MDMA as serotonergic. Is that anything that, you know, do you guys use that kind of terminology? Does it, is this serotonin generating or is it, does it just kind of feel like that? Or is that kind of like a misnomer? No, it is, that is a major part of the fact that there's serotonin release decreased serotonin reuptake. There's mm -hmm. actually some direct effect on serotonin receptors. So that is a big part of it, but it's very complicated because they're also norepinephrine and dopamine. Uh, there are hormones that are a number of hormones that are increased, um, prolactin and oxytocin in particular. There are other neurotransmitters. So it's a, it's what's called a very dirty drug. It's, yeah. not, it's not a pure right. serotonin drug at all. So it's just uh, this kind of ideal Long Island iced tea <laughs> cocktail of all the best <laughs> feelings that we can get, really. I mean, because you just went through the list of, you know, if I'm checking the box of all the things I want mm. in a cocktail, that's pretty much a lot of them. Well, it seems to be a good mixture. <laughs> <laughs> seems to be. now, yeah. But it doesn't always make people feel good. It, true. You know? True. I mean, that's the other part of it with PTSD that hopefully there'll be some time during the session where they feel good. Well, they're also going, you're guiding them into the darkest spots too at the, at the same point, right? Like this is part of the work is to, you know, we're not just hanging out and having fun here. We're going, this mm -hmm. is work, you know, pack mm -hmm. your lunch bag, everybody, cause we're going, we're clocking in here right. mm -hmm. and you know, you better be ready to, to access the same with any psychedelic really. I mean, that's the name of the game. There's right. the yeah. escapism version where you can go trying to find some pretty lights and a few, you know, different dance mm -hmm. moves. But then there's also the, the work version. And yeah. that's that's where the real healing and that's where yeah. you call it medicine versus right. the drug. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the preparation is to really talk to people about, you know, it's not like good trip versus bad trip. Yeah. You probably will have some affirming experiences that might be really important. Uh, but you're also probably going to have some really difficult experiences, and that's not a bad thing, even though it's challenging. It's all about being able to move into and move through the difficulty rather than moving away from it. Yeah. What are some of your favorite stories with uh, the people that you guys work with? Mm -hmm. Do you guys work together with yeah. uh, with people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, probably the best one of the best stories is the first person. You know, Michael and I had not obviously done this work before. We'd done breath work with people and had been with... On Stan Groff's holotropic Yeah, we both were method. trained in that and mm -hmm. we led groups for 10 years. And then we also worked with people in the office together. Um, but so our first person um, said that she she was like never had never taken any psychedelics and didn't never thought she would never thought she would but really was suffering and had uh, a lot of depersonalization where she couldn't feel happy she knew she had a loving family and husband but she really couldn't feel that and which is a, a kind of dissociation right michael mm -hmm. yeah and she came to us and she said i'd do anything i'd be willing to go to tibet to heal 
And I don't think she really had that concept of what that meant going to Tibet, mm-hmm. but that was her comment. It meant, she, it, maybe I said, it means that that I've tried everything. I'll I've travel anywhere. I've tried therapy. I'm yeah. desperate. Yeah. I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to go somewhere a lot farther and deeper than Tibet, <laughs> and it's going to be in your heart. <laughs> her first experience, she got randomized. So it was our first person, our first experience. She got randomized to 125 milligrams, a full dose. And as the medicine was coming on, she just smiled and lifted up her eye shades and said, I guess I won't be going having to go to Tibet. <laughs> she and could just tell immediately. So she just knew. Yeah. like. She hadn't even processed anything, but there's like this inner healing intelligence that knew she was on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it wasn't like that was the end of the story. She right. then went on to do some painful processing and revisiting the rape, but it was so remarkable that she just somehow knew she was going to be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's such a, that must have been such a cool moment for you guys. Really cool moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That was for us too. You know? Yeah. We're wondering, how is this going to go anyway? Yeah. <laughs> you know, our first person. Right. So yeah. We got some reassurance immediately too. <laughs> and how many of these transformations like that have you been able to witness? Yeah. Each person a has lot. had, each person has, has been unique in how they've transformed. I think, you know, I mean, there's so many, you can talk about some of them too, Michael, but there are just so many moments where it's knowing how people have transformed, but when you're with the new person, you're not sure. How is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? You hope it's going to happen. And and then seeing things change in these remarkable ways that aren't always showing out on, showing up on the scores that you're doing like the cap score right. there there's so many changes that are happening that aren't showing up there um yeah it's I, like a family yeah you know sure yeah yeah we got to you know there was that i think 25th or maybe the number is wrong but some anniversary dinner out here where a couple oh, the of 30th, them, the 30th yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. where ever you know a couple got to speak and it's just so moving to hear their stories and you guys are always great about playing different videos and showing these different mm-hmm experiences and just watching people go through this i have to you know i have to sympathize not only with the people who are suffering but also the compassionate you know psychiatrists and psychologists who've been trying to work with people who are so traumatized but they just don't have the tools it's like trying to be a great surgeon and all you got is like flint equipment you're like oh flint again Mm -hmm. like if i only had a scalpel i could do so much more work Mm -hmm. if i had you know if i was able to and it's just now it feels like with psilocybin and mdma all of a sudden you know the compassionate doctors have the tools to actually start doing the work that they really have, you know, wanted to dedicate their life to do. Yeah. And we hear that all the time from, you know, experienced psychiatrists, psychologists, other therapists that come to the training. Yeah. You know, and we we watch a lot of videos and we talk about how we approach it and what, you know, they see the impact of what can happen. And people are brought to tears about like, this is why I went into psychiatry this is why i became a therapist but i it's been so painful because i haven't really been able to help people the way i wanted and now i see there's a way so it's actually been really healing for a lot of the therapists i'm sure i mean imagine imagine you're trying so hard and then at a certain point you just have to accept the fact that you're not really 
able to do as much as you'd wanted to do. And that's yeah. got to really be difficult. And then all of a sudden this new way goes and you're like, wow, now, yeah. now we can start really doing some work. Cause yeah. otherwise it's like, you know, with all of the psychological disorders that are continuing to progress in our country, it's like we ha we're in the Titanic and it's sinking and everybody's got little pots and we're trying to bail things out with little pots. And now all of a sudden, we got whole different system. You know, we got bilge pumps and we got things that really can start <laughs> yeah. to move the, mm -hmm. move the, the sinkage out of the way. Yeah. yeah. That's a good analogy. Cause it's not as if the current therapies don't have any basis to them or that they, that they can't be helpful. Yeah. They're trying to do something useful. Like bailing with a pot is yeah. a good intention and a better and than not bailing right at thing, all, but it's just <laughs> yeah. way too slow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one thing I've always liked, uh, George Greer. I don't know if you've ever interviewed him. Uh -huh. Yeah. You've interviewed George. Yeah, George. Not on the uh, podcast, but I had lunch with him. You know, he, as you know, he did one of the early case reports back before it became illegal. And we, we met with George and Rico, his wife, in the beginning when we were starting this. We wanted to, that's when we first met him. We went out to see them in Santa Fe and we were talking to get their advice and he said, you know, there's nothing you can do with MDMA that you can't do without MDMA, but you just might not get to it in this lifetime. <laughs> so, yeah, a, you could bail that whole boat with a pot, but it probably would have sunk before you got finished. That's the problem. All right. No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And then, you know, the frustration of like having 1500, over 1,500 people call for our vet study for 26 slots. Yeah. 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 Recruitment is probably not the challenge that no. you guys not have anymore. here. Not no. anymore. Because the, I mean, the first the study did take the first study did take four years to recruit 20 people. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just the the number of people that want help. Yeah. I mean, it's heartbreaking, really. I've, I think it's actually gone yeah. over 2000 now. Yeah. And I, I've got some in my phone right now. I get a number probably averaging four or five emails and phone calls every day of people wanting to know if there are any slots in the study. Yeah. And it's not individuals. It's like husbands calling for wives and, you know, fathers and, or daughters calling for their fathers and, you know, and the way it affects the family, yeah. the way it affects all the relationship. Um, we've seen a number of people who, um, veterans, especially, and, a, and one firefighter who couldn't connect with their kids, wanted so desperately to connect with that five-year-old and those kids, but couldn't feel the connection at all with them. And then they did the study, and they're suddenly connected again. And, you know, what a difference that makes for that family. Yeah. You know, one story, just coming back to the stories, one that I think is really remarkable is one of the veterans who had been in Iraq. He was an army sergeant and he got randomized to 75 milligrams, which, the, you know, the medium dose we were using, which turned out to be very effective too. And he had one 75 milligram session. And at the end of that, he didn't talk that much during the session. At the end, he said, here's, here's part of what I got in the session. I realized I wasn't being honest with you or myself about how much opiate and he was on prescription opiates for back injury. He got mm -hmm. blown out of a truck. He said, I wasn't being honest with you or myself about 
how much I was using and why I was using it. I was telling myself I was using it for back pain, but I realized in the session I was using it for emotional myself pain. for emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And the message I got was, I don't need anything from outside of me to change the way I feel. And that includes MDMA. Yeah. So he said, he came out, he said, and he started being able to talk about his war experiences with his friends and his family. He reconnected with his father. And he said, I, I don't need any more MDMA. So he dropped out of treatment. He refused. He, he could have had two more 75 milligram sessions and then three 125 milligram mm -hmm. sessions. But he said, part of the message was, I don't need that. But he didn't drop out of follow-up. So he came back for his follow-up two months later and one year later. His PTSD was gone. His symptom levels were extremely low and stayed low at one year. So he was cured with one dose. And it just shows we're not creating MDMA addicts. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, the tipping point between starting the healing cascade versus starting the you know, disassociation or the negative cascade, you know, sometimes all it takes is just tipping that process to allow the, the mind to actually start doing what we're very capable of doing. Like right. our bodies and psyches are designed to heal, but sometimes we just need a little help to get back on track. I mean, exactly. but we have this paradigm in our head that, you know, we're in, we have, I think a lot of people look at the body like this really faulty system. Oh, he's breaking down faulty system, faulty genetics, faulty m brain chemistry. Everything's out of whack. I got to get all these things, patch this thing up. Cause I got this stupid human thing. Yeah. You're like mm. wrong. Yeah. I got this miraculous human thing right. that occasionally needs a little tweaking and a little, you know, a little help, but it's the most powerful doctor that we'll ever have exactly. is ourself. That's Removing our the obstacles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I often use the analogy with people when we're talking to them about their own innate healing capacity, which people are surprised to hear doctors and nurses talking about. You know, I use the analogy of I, I did emergency medicine for 10 years before I switched to psychiatry in 91. And I use the analogy of like when people came in with a big gash, say a gash in their arm, and I didn't know how to heal that. All I knew how to do is create favorable conditions and remove obstacles, you know, so mm -hmm. I get the gravel out of there and wash it out. So the edges close together, all that was doing was creating favorable conditions for the, then this miraculous or incredibly um, elegant and powerful healing process to take over. Yeah. Or, and it might get blocked. Like if there was infection or a foreign body or not enough blood supply, I could, help with those things, help remove those obstacles. But I had no idea how to heal it. Yeah. And it always, you know, I didn't think about it so much at the time, but it always moved toward healing. I never saw anybody with like a 10 centimeter laceration. And when I brought him back to check the wound, it was 11 mm. centimeters. <laughs> right. It might be still 10 if there was some obstacle. Sure. But it was always trying, moving toward healing. Yeah. And same thing with the psyche, as you're saying. So... I think it's really true. When you look out at, at the world in this kind of post-legalization, I know you guys are so in the thick of the, in the, thick of the fight right now. Maybe it's you know, almost uh, too much of an indulgence to, to look back to that. But you know, when you look at that world that is very likely going to come to pass 
fairly soon here, three, four years, however long these phase twos, depending on breakthrough status or not, and whatever factors, funding, et cetera. What is that? What does that world look like? How fast do you think this thing scales up? How many people can start to get treated? I mean, is this going to be a, a supply and demand issue immediately out of the gates that's going to be, and then how are you going to deal with that? And, and then where does it go from there? Do you want to comment on that? <laughs> Um, I think yeah, you can, honey. It's going to be a big challenge. Yeah. Because yeah. you can see, like we're talking about, we already have thousands of people wanting to get in a study for 26 people. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges is going to be to, to train, start training therapists because we think and we hope the FDA is going to require people to have specialized training like we've been doing for the research sure. therapists. So the clinicians should have that too. So we're... You know, once the dust settles of getting phase three underway, we're really going to turn our attention to expanding the training program. But it is, I think it's going to be a big supply problem of trained therapists. Yeah. And that's one reason we're, you know, we're beginning to collaborate with people, say some people at the VA researchers, to see about combining MDMA with some other existing treatments that they have therapists already trained in. Yeah, so you have a whole... Mm -hmm. train them additionally to add MDMA. Prolonged exposure, is that the... uh, Yeah, we're... uh, Barbara Rothbaum, a researcher in Atlanta at Mm -hmm. Emory and Atlanta VA, is we're collaborating with her. She's going to do a study with prolonged exposure plus MDMA. We're working with Candace Monson and Ann Wagner from Toronto on a study of cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, couples therapy, yeah. with adding MDMA. We're, we're doing that right now with couples where one person has PTSD, the other doesn't, but we, they both get MDMA at the same time and we work with them together as a couple. So that's another way she, they've trained a lot of people in their method of working with couples. So if we can show that MDMA can be a catalyst for that as well, that'll allow more you know more therapists in more places so it's but it's going to be a big challenge i think it's going to yeah change. the other challenge yeah. will be how to do how to get people that can't afford this therapy right into a treatment mm-hmm. well i mean if, particularly in the case of veterans i mean they're the insurance is currently paying 30 billion yeah. for this cocktail of 10 to 12 yeah. pharmaceuticals that mm-hmm. they're just Right. I mean, it's got to be a lot cheaper than that. Yeah, you know, definitely. So, so that'll that'll um, mm-hmm. hopefully the funding will come through. And I also know that there's they're doing some work on AI psychotherapy um, in the in the military. Are you guys aware of that uh, of that project that they have going on, where someone like an interface, a friendly female interface, you know, kind of checks in, builds rapport, takes people through a few standard questions, and starts to measure some physiological responses. Do you, do you guys see, and I asked Tony uh, Bosis about this and he hadn't really considered it because obviously psilocybin also has a psychotherapy component should that mm-hmm. make its way to legalization. But the potential for instead of human uh, psychotherapists, which obviously is very nice, the human empathy and connection and that I'm a believer will never fully be replicated. But it is possible to get perhaps the minimum effective psychotherapy through um an AI interface potentially that's playing the right music based on the cues and the responses and guiding people to, Hmm. you know, the memories trained of course, and taught by, you know, the human practitioners, but then Hmm. learning from there. Cause that, at that point, if you nailed that and showed in clinical research that, you know, 
that was effective, all of a sudden you have an infinite supply of available psychotherapists. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Well, that's, that's really interesting. One. I, <laughs> I, I'm aware that that's going on. You know, I think it's going to, I think it's going to depend on the individual. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's really good that people are pursuing that. And I think for some people, the human, I, I think I agree with you. The human connection is, is important, but probably not absolutely necessary for some people. Sure. So we have to really be practical. I think some people who have especially early attachment trauma probably need human therapists in that corrective yeah. experience. But other people that have haven't had so that kind of problems early in life, but maybe have had war trauma or some other trauma, yeah, maybe AI could help. I think once we get approval it'll be possible to really research how to be more cost effective. Like yeah. that may be one way doing it in groups for some people, maybe one way, mm-hmm. Yeah, which, you know, again, may be suitable for a lot of people and then others would really require individual therapy. But I think it'll be possible to figure all that out. It'll mm-hmm. be so much easier to research all that once we get, get it out of schedule one. Yeah, yeah. And you know, people have been working with biofeedback and neurofeedback and how to get in these states with what you're talking about, with music or tones. So what about using that for integration? Yeah. You know, having people go into a state that's like a psychedelic state. Yeah. Um, but doing the therapy and then having that as a way to continue working, just like, you know, yoga or whatever spiritual path somebody has, art, some kind of creativity yeah mm-hmm. it's amazing to see i mean and i think it may actually ultimately become necessary just because there's i think there's the maintenance level but then mm-hmm. there's going to be the initial flood level you know yeah. when this hits critical mass and all mm-hmm. of a sudden we have people who everybody's like okay the new the new game's on now you know and and i think to just get through that amount of individuals you know having ways to scale this mm. is and i know you guys are working hard to you know get as many therapists ready and that's absolutely crucial because that's going to be the very first first line but the scale issue is something that's that's interesting to explore because there's so many people you know who are affected by this and it's not just the just the trauma i mean like with psilocybin you you guys have to pick one of a variety of different things to work on and and ptsd has you know is clearly the one for mdma and now depression is clearly the one for psilocybin but the positive potential positive results for a variety of other conditions yeah. are there. Yeah. I mean, they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you had to look at, you know, some of the other different areas you talked about, you know, the couple's adjunct therapy and you talked about some of these other, but what are some of the other major psychiatric or minor psychiatric conditions that you think MDMA might be helpful for if you had the time funding research to be able to, to study it? Yeah. Well, definitely depression. Yeah. Uh, or in the second study, all of the people that got the full or the medium dose, their depression scales went down. Now, is that, do you think that's because depression is a downstream effect of trauma? Or do you think that's because it just treats the depression, you know, directly? Probably both. Probably both. Yeah. I would say probably, probably both. Both. I mean, that's yeah. another research question to check out in the future. But yeah, you know. As, I don't know if you heard Tom Insel and Paul Summergrad yesterday on the panel, but 
they were talking about, you know, the, the mental health problem worldwide is so huge. We definitely need to be creative about how to, how to address that. So, yeah. Um, Interesting. So, um, now anything like further kind of off the wall with, uh, with MDMA, any kind of hunches or instincts? I mean, you guys have worked with a lot of different people and seen a lot of results that, you know, like for mm -hmm. example, someone in the psilocybin, you know, I've had a lot of psilocybin interviews, someone in the psilocybin goes into, all right, I'm going to quit smoking. Yeah. Whoops. Accidentally. I just saw God, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to quit smoking. I found God and I quit smoking. Yes, for sure. But yeah. that was like the least important thing that happened in that session. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I mean, yeah. do you guys see some of these responses that are like, Oh yeah, yeah. The trauma that's gone. But let me tell you about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, we've had people quit smoking. Yeah. Um, quit caffeine Start eating vegetables. Start eating vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never had lettuce and tomato on their hamburger. And suddenly they love broccoli and peppers. Maybe. Do you think that's because they love themselves more? Or they're in some way they just want to treat themselves better? Or what's that? What's the, what's the deal with that? Yeah. I mean. I think that's part of it. But also just kind of open to new ideas. Yeah. 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 So we um, did the Neo with everybody and that paper is going to come out and that's about the personality structures. And one of the findings is that people are more no open, mm. higher openness, less neuroticism. Yeah. It seems like all of these patterns of trauma create a certain type of rigidity, a yeah. rigidity in thinking, yeah. rigidity and emotions and mm -hmm. fear is a, is a paralyzing force. Yeah. It's, you know, almost it causes everything to get a little bit petrified and I can imagine. Yeah. As Controlling you, your environment. As you open that up, everything starts to become more flexible. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, I mentioned that work, the, the imaging work um, in a number of places, but Robin Carhart Harris in London has done a lot of it with the, about the default mode network mm -hmm. and the way it, you know, it's, a, it's in a way a more sophisticated way than just looking at where's the, where's the most activity, but like how are the networks relating and like the, when the default net mode network is is less active in some areas, it creates the possibility for unexpected new experience. Some one of the presenters the other day was using the analogy of like a, a, if you're sledding down a mountain or in a, or in a toboggan and you keep taking the same track, it gets harder and harder to get out of that track once yeah. you get going, and mm -hmm. that's kind of the way it is with PTSD or a lot of a lot of ways we get stuck and suffering. And when you do that, decrease the default in the network is if you're putting a new covering of snow where there are infinite possibilities. And you find that's one reason not being directive in the therapy is so good because you never know. Suddenly people have this whole larger repertoire of experiences and realizations and things that can happen so yeah. you just never know what unexpected like a, a good current. snow and the groomers come in and yeah. <laughs> give, you, right. give you some fresh powder to right. be able to go whoa this right. is awesome I, I got curve. powder again ski over that way. <laughs> yeah for sure um to get this over the line it's going to cost some money what are your guys projections for the monetary requirements that are going to be needed to get this done well that's much more Rick's department than ours, but he's estimating about 25 million 
yeah. for the to get, finish the first two phase three studies in the United States, which will be required for approval, and then maybe another ten million for adding a European study to get approval in Europe. And you know what's what's really interesting to put this in perspective, like. Uh, people poured a bunch of ice buckets on their heads, and I think they raised a considerable multiple more than that for ALS, which is a great endeavor and you know a mm. good cause. But there wasn't any particular avenue or pathway that looked that promising for that research. You yeah. know, it's just kind of like here you go, let's hope. Yeah. And then here we're asking for twenty five million, and we got a pretty sure path paved, you know, all evidence pointing towards massive world shifting, mm. you know, paradigm altering treatments. And it seems like a lot of money, but it's really not a lot of money yeah. it's, for drug development. It's, yeah. no. You know, I think um, mm. people ask, what do you think the pharmaceutical companies think of what you're doing? And Rick's take on it, which makes sense to me is, they don't think there's any possibility that such a small organization with this small amount of money could possibly bring a drug to market, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so they, they think it's impossible, so they're probably not paying much attention. So it's not much for for getting a drug approved. And MAPS is a, an organization that is truly funded by just everybody giving what they can. Yes. You know, there's no, yeah. there's no massive grants coming in. There's not money falling in from the sky. Like anybody listening now, if you have some money, if you're moved by this, if you know anybody who could be helped or touched by this, like this is, this is the front lines of what yeah. we're doing. Like this is the place to, to give a little extra, you know, yeah. so many people at maps have worked for volunteering, you know, yeah. not getting paid. No doubt. Yeah. yeah, no government funding, no firms, no industry funding, no no chance for profit, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I really respect everybody who's providing food for the hungry and working on all of these downstream issues. But this thing, I think this is the most important cause we have because it starts at the top of the pyramid. It starts this trickle-down approach where it's healing people from the inside out and then not only healing them, healing the people that they're going to touch, mm. their families, their spouses, their children. This is a multi-generational healing yeah, that we're potentially creating. And and with that consciousness, with then activating them to become healers of not only themselves but other people and spreading this kind of Posit positivity that who knows what kind of impact that'll have you know yeah. it's like the old uh, analogy from you know i think it was biblical where it said you know instead of giving someone a fish teach them how to fish right. <laughs> you know instead of giving someone a little snack of something that might be helpful you know let's teach them how to heal themselves yeah. and that's this mm. is the this is the front lines of that cause so anybody listening maps.org maps.org um, I'm certainly going to be dedicating a ton of my efforts to it. And, you know, uh, I really personally and the world appreciates, and I know you guys do all the help that, that we can get in this fight. Oh, it's, yeah. Thank it, you we, so we much. Appreciate it so yeah. much. You know, if it weren't for all this support, of course, we wouldn't be able to do this at all. It's, it's really a community effort. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you, thank you for your service. Yeah, Thanks thank for, you for your time. holding the light in the in the dark times, and now you know Thanks. bringing it over the finish line. Thank you for <laughs> thank helping you. to shine the light. <laughs> no doubt, no <laughs> doubt. Happy people. to be a service. Yeah. 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 Much love, everybody. <laughs> Bye. There are many challenges facing our world right now, and a lot of causes that need our support. 
But I truly believe that the one thing that can do the absolute most good is the legalization of psychedelic medicines. You've heard some of the amazing stories with these amazing guests. It has the potential to cure trauma, depression, anxiety, addiction, these plagues that our society is suffering from and will continue to suffer from unless we can bring a cure. The opportunity for us to fund these clinical trials and potentially legalize psychedelic medicine is right in our hands. It's not that much money. We just need a little bit of support. I set up a page at thecureisnear.com. Once again, that's thecureisnear.com. Absolutely anything helps. You can donate five bucks. You can just share it with somebody who has five bucks. You can split five bucks and each give 250. It doesn't matter. They need our support. It's not that much more money left and we might be able to have the tool that can start to cure the world. So please check it out out of curiosity, out of interest, out of love, out of compassion. For whatever reason, just check out the page, thecureisnear.com, and see if you can find it in your heart to help us out. I started taking fulvic minerals about a year and a half ago, and I noticed a dramatic difference. I started talking about it on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast because it was so significant, even though on it didn't have a fulvic minerals product yet. It comes from this compound called shilaji, which you can imagine is like super old plants that come from the Himalayas. And these plants, you know, what makes plants so valuable is a lot of their vitamin, mineral, and enzyme content. But when you get to the shilaji, which is this ancient plant and mineral deposits, it's basically all of these plants boiled down to their essential mineral and acid components, this substance called fulvic acid. And what it does is it starts to fill in all the gaps with your nutrient absorption, your mineral absorption, and has a dramatic impact to overall energy. I just felt like I had more gas in the tank. I felt like my systems were running more efficiently. Some of the clinical research shows it benefits to endurance so that you can have more actual energy, more cellular energy, more physical energy, helping with sleep, helping with muscle adaptation helping with nutrient absorption so the other foods and compounds that you do eat get absorbed into your body even better, and even with testosterone production. And of course, if you're an athlete or somebody, this won't supersede your natural negative feedback loop. This is not gonna drive things so high that you're gonna fail your drug test, but it is gonna support your body's natural ability uh, to produce things like your adequate hormones, energy, and the things you need. Uh, we offer two different types. We have a mocha flavor and then the unflavored. The unflavor is pretty acidic. The mocha adds some of that kind of sweet mocha flavor so that you can mix it with water and taste a little bit better. But I highly recommend giving it a try. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey to make sure you lock in your discount and then navigate to the fulvic minerals. Onit.com slash Aubrey and navigate to fulvic minerals.